Welcome back, everyone, to the Fitness Psychology Podcast. I'm Dr. John. Before we get started, uh, just a quick housekeeping item. If you hear something today and it resonates with you, please go online to iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and leave us a five-star review. We've got a special guest today, and uh, this is going to be an excellent interview, so you're definitely going to want to dig in and listen to this one. Uh, I'm with Vance Johnson. Vance was a 1982 national champion in the long jump. Is that correct? That's right. University of Arizona. Yes, you did your homework, and, man. And uh, played in the NFL for 10 years from 85 to 95, catching passes from Hall of Famer John Elway as a member of the Three Amigos with Ricky Natile and Mark Jackson. You did do your homework. <laughs> I grew up watching you. All right, brother. I grew up watching you. And uh, so, and, but uh, we're going to be more talking about uh, life after football and behind the uniform and off the field more today. And Vance has also started the Vance Johnson Recovery Center out in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, he's traveling around with the, with the is it Oglethorpe? Mm -hmm. Yep. And um, with the Oglethorpe Company and, um, you know, helping folks to find their way to recovery. And so, Vance, I can't thank you enough for spending time with me today, and I welcome you. Doctor, you know, I can't tell you how excited I was and am now to be here with you and have had a chance to spend some time with you before the podcast just to see how credentialed you are, your history in this space, and I'm honored to be able to not only just be able to talk with you, but get some therapy while I'm doing that. All right, yeah, all right. Man, so. Well, two in one. We'll multitask that. <laughs> Absolutely. Right, so... Well, Vance, I mean, growing up watching you, and a lot of us know that you were a very electrifying performer on the field, but what I think a lot of people don't know about is the struggles that you faced off the field. And I, I guess if you could tell us a little bit about those struggles and some of the origins of them. Yeah, you know, it started at a very young age, and ironically, you know, people, when we're children especially, what we see as kids is going to affect us one way or another when we grow up. Sure. Most of us say, I'm not going to be like that when I grow up and end up becoming that. And only a fraction of us really walk away and go the right way. Right. Well, in my case, uh, I'm originally from New Jersey. And how I came about being from Jersey is my father was growing up in Jersey and a part of gangs, a gangbanger. There are a lot of murders. There are a lot of drugs. There are a lot of craziness happening. And he was one of the last ones alive. And so he ended up actually going to court and being faced with prison time or joining the service back in the 50s. He opted for the service. Sure. Well, when he went to the service, he was stationed out in Fort Huachuca, Arizona, where after a, a few months, they were able to go off-site, and my dad ended up going to a concert. You probably never heard of this singer. His name is James Brown. Oh, maybe heard of him once <laughs> or twice. <laughs> he went to a James Brown concert. My dad was 21, and he saw a young lady sitting inside of a car, and so he tapped on the window, and she rolls the window down, and he introduced himself. My name is Eugene. And she says, my name is Imogene. So Gene and Gene are talking, and he asked her, why aren't you inside at the party? Because James Brown is here. And she says, I'm only 15. He's 21. Oh, wow. So he starts macking on this 15-year-old. Eventually, he goes out to the cotton gin yard where she works at. She picks cotton for a living. Uh -huh. He went to her high school, got on his knees, and proposed to her. Wow. She said, I'll marry you, but I have to ask my daddy. Oh, my god. So they goodness. go back, and, and, they get, <laughs> and he gives her permission. And next thing you know, um being born when we get back to Trenton, New Jersey. That's how it came about being born on the East Coast. Gotcha. Now, the crazy craziness was the streets raised my father, so my father went back to the streets when I was born and we were living in Jersey. Gotcha. Well, after the abuse that my mother went through with him 
and a second child. My mother left him and went to Arizona okay. and said, if you ever want to see us again, you got to come to Arizona. Well, my father followed us to Arizona so okay. that we could be a family. Gotcha. But there's a saying, you could take the brother out of Jersey, but you can't take Jersey out of the brother. Gotcha. And so my father went back to his crazy ways. And the other thing he started doing was really beating on my mother, my mother really bad. And so from a very young age, all I saw was a lot of domestic violence. Yeah, we went to church, but I didn't see church at home. And so me as a child, I thought what I saw in my home, even though I hated my father and I hate what I saw, to him, saw him do, that I wasn't going to grow up to be that way, but it was all I knew. Sure. And so as we go on with the story, you'll see how it progressed to me becoming seven times worse than my dad. How did you cope with that in those early years when you're going through that as a child and adolescent? Um, what were what were the skills that you put in place just out of necessity to survive? How did you? That's a very good question, Doctor. Because honestly, what happens when we're children, and some of your listeners will resonate with this, when you're a child, so that you don't have to be inside, even though you're in the environment you're growing up around, you find your way inside of your head trying to figure out a way to escape. And so, to me, when I watch sports on television. That was my escape because I would literally portray myself as being one of those famous ball players one day, being rich, being famous, and having everything, and that was going to get me away from the chaos. So then what I did was, instead of going to bed at night listening to my dad kick my mom's butt, I went and ran. Gotcha. And so I started to believe that my identity had to be something that I was going to achieve. Sure. And so by watching professional sports and watching all this greatness and watching people get claps and accolades, it's what I wanted to grow when I grew up. And so whenever I start hearing people clap for me when I won races, it validated who I knew I wanted to be. Sure. Not knowing that it was going to lead to the biggest fall of my life. But that was how I coped as a young child. I learned actually, uh, and I'm going to get real deep with you. Please I learned do. about sex when I was a kid because I was sneaking my dad's room and I'd see these Hustler magazines. Mm-hmm. I would see VHS, VCR clips and i put them in. i watch people having sex. Mm-hmm. So... I was sneaking, doing all these things behind their back, not knowing that I was going to grow up, become a sex, a sexaholic, uh, alcoholic, a you know gambler. Every every single thing I saw my dad do and I didn't want to do was waiting for me to become. But I didn't know because I wanted to be famous and I wanted to be great and I wanted to do life my way. You were hoping to latch on to fame and hopefully have that be the escape to, to draw you out yeah, of the situation. exactly. And I couldn't wait for it, you know. And in fact, and I'll be honest with you, when I was a child, I was so broken as a kid that I would run away from home sometimes. I never celebrated my birthday. They would have huge birthday parties for me, but I would be a no-show at my own birthday parties because I knew it was just a lie. Mm-hmm. We took all these pictures, and I'm like, why are we taking all these pictures? And we're all smiling, but yet when no one's around, there's nothing but abuse and violence around the right. house and drunkenness and a father coming home in the middle of the night and a mom crying and her black eyes and her bloody lips. This is not real for me. Sure. So as I grew up and I got to high school, I remember one day coming home so mad at my father because of the way I saw him abuse my mom that I was old enough now that I said, I'm going to kill this son of a son of a gun. Anyway, I drug him outside. He was drunk one day, and I picked this huge boulder up, and I was going to crack him on top of his head with it and kill him. And he looked at me and said, go ahead and kill me. I'm a piece of crap anyway. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to kill you, but if you ever touch my mother again, I will kill you. And so, but I went back to sports. And so it made him proud. And what I noticed was whenever I became that hero in the house, the domestic issues slowed down. Right. So we all play a role in the house. One of the things, if I could interrupt, that I remember reading from the book, though, is it sounds like as much as you were excelling in the athletics, 
it sounds like whatever you did was never enough. No. It, you, you, can't, you can't fill that hole, right? And the reason why it was never enough, because to me, it was, it was like, you, didn't know, you don't know this when you're young. It's temporary. It's a temporary satisfaction, right? But we, we grow thinking that that's what we're going to have, and that's what we need, and that's going to fill me up. And it really didn't. And so, but it wasn't enough for him either. I, I remember oh, reading, never. I, I remember reading a part in the book where you know you had one Super Bowl ring. He said, "I want two. You want two. You had two. He want he wanted three. Guess it what? was never enough to, to please him. And so that's the other part. You know, and I see this with my clientele all the time is that when we grow up in a situation where we can't get that person's approval, and it becomes that holy grail that we're always chasing over and over for the rest of our life. Sometimes trying to get people's approval. You did read the book because it actually started younger than that. It started when I was in down in elementary school, uh, junior high school rather, when I would lose a race or get second place, which to me I thought was pretty good, my father would drive away and make me walk home. Oh, my gosh. When I played in football games, if I sc- or scored three touchdowns, he'd look at me and say, I want four. When I scored four touchdowns, I want five. So it was never enough, ever. When I went, when I went to college, I won the NCAA championship thinking that was enough. I beat Carl Lewis, one of the greatest jumpers sure. in the world. He just now said in 82. Can-Am Games. Yeah, I blew away Jerry Rice. I mean, I, went, I was on the Olympic team as an alternate. That wasn't enough. Went to the NFL and made touchdowns. That wasn't enough. Then he wanted to come out and borrow my car and spend money. And I hated the guy. And I didn't know that this was going to put me into relationships now where all of a sudden hell was going to break loose in my life because I didn't know how to be a man in a relationship. Gotcha. So talk to us about the, you know, you get to the NFL, your second round draft pick of the Broncos, and um, I think 85 is your first year. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing you in 86. I remember seeing you catching touchdown passes against the Patriots, and I remember seeing you letting it up pretty well against the Giants in the Super Bowl. Absolutely, brother. And um, so pinnacle of your career, yet first page of your book, it talks about you just played in your first Super Bowl. You're 23 years old, yet in a very, very dark place, sitting in your closet. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, we, uh, for you Giants fans, you're welcome. You guys won the game. But this, this is not what caused me to get that deep uh, in this brokenness that I had. But when I got back home, I was in my closet, man, and I had had a house of 96 when I was on the first floor. I had had relationships at this time. I had children. I was using, I was drinking heavily at the time, taking Xanax and different other types of painkillers. I was in my closet and I was cutting my wrist. I was literally trying to kill myself. And my mother called me. Where was your mindset at that time? What, what were you saying to yourself at that time? What was bringing you down so much to the point where you were feeling that desperate, that hopeless? Because I was empty. I thought when I landed in Denver, Colorado, that I finally made it to where every kid wants to make it in life and be a professional athlete. And Every single day, even all the trouble that I was getting in, but I wouldn't even get in trouble because I was Vance Johnson, there was nothing that fed my flesh enough to make me feel like I was ever adequate. And so after getting coming home from the Super Bowl and realizing that's all there is, it's over now. And now everyone's talking about, you guys going to make it again next year? And so there was nothing there. Now, there was something there when I was in the game, mm-hmm. but after the game, I was broken and lost. And I didn't realize that the underlying issues, the things that – started in my childhood, were affecting me now as an adult. I really had no idea about that. I thought it was my world. I was a a new creation, so to speak, and I was famous. But there was nothing good about it, man, nothing at all. And so I lived a lie. I literally lived the edited version for those people that were watching, just like you do right now when you look at Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram. You're getting the highlight reel. You're getting the edited version, Mm -hmm. right? 
Yep, it's the highlight reel, and that's it. That's and, it. And, and there's and the funny thing is, is there's there's higher incidences of anxiety in in kids now. You, you go to college campuses, and they talk about in the student counseling centers, the incidence of anxiety is higher than ever, and it's because of social media. Brother, I everybody try. is comparing themselves to everybody else. They're thinking that everybody else's lives are perfect, and theirs are lousy, and they don't realize that everybody else has problems in their lives too. Yeah, brother, I travel all over the country and speak to thousands and thousands of kids, and I'll go in there, and they'll have their cell phones and they're getting bullied. In fact, you know what? You know that they're actually less social now with social media than they were before they had social media. Right, because right. nobody knows how to talk face to face like we're doing right now. Right, we can. I can sit in my bedroom and, and talk to you either on my on live face FaceTime, mm -hmm. or I can uh, go ahead and send some messages over to you, and we can hang out that way. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I get in front of you, it's not the real person that you were hanging out with on, right. on social media. Right, and then you, you bully me, you look at me funny. I don't want to live anymore. And that's why these kids, there's a huge, it's an epidemic right now with suicide. Absolutely. It's almost like the end thing, right? Because these kids don't know who they are. Right. Their identity is in this, this phone. It's a virtual world. The virtual world. And that world has nothing to do with reality except for entertaining them and feeding their flesh. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it definitely sounds like, you, so you get in the NFL and you've got all this fame. and then, But the problem is, like we said before, if you don't get something at an early age, you didn't have somebody modeling for you. How to be a man, how to have those skills, how to cope with anger, depression, anxiety, right. um, you name it. And so you're trying to figure that out all on your own. Right. I, and I did because, again, I didn't have a father that was showing me how to be a man as a child. He didn't show me how to treat a woman. He didn't show me how to take care of my finances. He didn't show me that education was going to be important, that my career was going to be over with one day. He just showed me how to feed my flesh, and that's all I did. And... I got in a relationship and ended up getting a, a third woman pregnant because I'm skipping. And when she got pregnant, she ended up actually marrying me because she was going to have an abortion. And then I found out that she cheated on me with my teammates. And I got in a huge fight with her. I threw her across the bed, and she was on the ground. She wasn't breathing, and literally she was laying there dead. Wow. And, and I hate to even say this on radio, but she wasn't breathing. And I thought I was going to go to jail, and I carried her in the bathroom. I dumped water in her face, and after a few minutes, she breathes. And I was even more pissed off. And so, again, because I didn't know how to treat a woman as a child, to me, she broke my heart. So that meant to me, go get another woman. Gotcha. And so I kept repeating that cycle. Gotcha. And then the next time, I was like, well, instead of getting a fight with a woman, I'll just cheat on her. And then if it doesn't work out, I'll marry another woman. So long story short, brother, I was married seven times. Seven times. Three times while I was in the NFL. Right. Three Super Bowls, 10 years. I wanted to commit suicide all the time. I hated my life. I hated myself. But I sure would smile. I sure would smile and I'd make touchdowns and feel good about the things that I was doing on the field all along when I was living a lie. I gambled and did drugs. I did everything. It, it was ridiculous. And wearing that mask for the public is exhausting. It was exhausting, man. And I knew I had to put it on again the very next morning. Right. Can you imagine, though, if they had social media back then? I would have went viral because of the crap that I was doing during my career that now if a guy gets caught doing it, which, by the way, is happening. And, I mean, this is a whole other podcast, but I think a lot of it has to do with the concussions, too, and the CTE. Mm -hmm. And the former athletes, after our career, if we had trauma when we were children, once our careers are with, the only way we cope now mentally is by using. Right. Right? To the point where we're killing ourselves. Absolutely. Now, I was reading in the book that your CTE scans, they came back kind of inconclusive. Yeah, ironically, they came back inconclusive, but, and I'll be, let me even back up. So after my career was over with, I was crazy, certifiably crazy. 
because of all the things that I did and the way I would be driving, getting car accidents. I had one car accident, I was going over 100 miles an hour, I crashed and went to the hospital. And this was actually during my career, right at the end. And they ended up, um, so that I wouldn't get arrested, moving me down by the, by the morgue. Oh, wow. For like nine hours. And then the cops came to do a raid on the hospital. Again, social media, out of blew up back then. This was how I was getting through life. And when I finally got this. So people were kind of bailing you out and sneaking around? Everywhere, and... dude. All it took was game tickets. Game tickets, gotcha. Super Bowl tickets, and Vance was off to the races. Um, so long story short. So nothing's ever really fully holding you accountable? Nothing. No, not, especially when you're fa famous. Nobody really wants to tell a famous person what to do. You know, give me a check. Write gotcha. me, give me some tickets. Write the check, save your neck. Oh, I like that one. Absolutely. So I end up actually um, having these problems with, uh, with, with my mind. I was on a lot of, a lot of medications. And that even made me even more crazy, to be honest with you. And so I, I literally considered suicide for a long time and struggling with my addiction. One of my kids actually tried to reach out to me one day. He was living with me, and uh, he had, had broken his um, engines in his car. And I was using, and he couldn't reach me. And my son actually ended up going across the mountain to see his mother. And um, I, I hate saying this. This is the third time today I had to say it. And it touches my heart every time I say it, but my son got killed that night. Vaughn, right? Yeah. Okay. I remember reading about that. I mean, literally. He, he, was on a, he was on a motorcycle? Yeah. I mean, it was my fault that my son died. I know people try to tell me, no, Vance, it wasn't your fault. But How was it your fault? You know, when people ask me that, I, I say this. If I was a good father and I'd answered the phone, my son would ask to borrow my car. I'd have given it to him. But because I was more about me and my flesh and because of the things I dealt with mentally and emotionally, it wasn't about my kids. And so all seven of my kids at that time were either, three of them were being sexually molested. The other ones had no idea. They in foster care? No, they were, they were living with their moms and either the babysitters or the granddads or somebody was molesting oh, these kids. Goodness. And so, I mean, I was hearing about these things, but I, it didn't even matter to me, man, because I was about me. So that's what I'm saying about this mental health thing is real. Um, and so I literally, for a, a couple of years after my son died, I just, I started using more because that's what we do when we hurt. We use more. Sure. And I literally used myself into a coma. One of the parts that just tugged at my heart in the book was when you were in treatment um, down here in Florida. And I remember they asked you how you coped with Vaughn's death. And one of the other people said, so you celebrated your son's death. And what does that mean? Well, you, your approach to that was the same as had you won a big game or any other major event in your life. You know, thanks for drinking. And um, what really tugged at my heartstrings was hearing about how you had the mock funeral for your son while you were yeah. in treatment. It was ironic. So, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm sold out on Christ, man. And, uh, and I think that honestly is the reason why I'm going to be clean for the rest of my life. But when I first went to treatment, there was a Muslim guy there, and he looks over at me, and this is how he prefaced it. So he didn't go right to that, right to that. He started at this, at this level. He said, so when you made touchdowns, when you won ball games, when you bought nice cars, when you met beautiful women, did you party? I said, heck yeah, I'll party, man. He was like, and you really enjoyed it, didn't you? I said, I would use, I would have such a great time. He said, so why did you do the very same thing you did when you were having a good time when your son died. 
You just wanted another excuse to go have a freaking party, didn't you? And I looked at him. I wanted to kick his butt, man. I was so pissed off. I said, why would you say that? He said, well, man, listen, you party when you were doing good stuff. Why would you party when, you were, when your son died? And so I had to go to my room and think about what he said and put it in perspective that if I can say to myself, Vance, you celebrated when your son died, is that really how you want to live? And that's when I was asked to do a psychodrama course where I had to play the role of my son laying in the coffin and talking to my dad. And I said, Dad, you're my hero. Why are you trying to kill yourself now that I'm gone? I want you to make me a promise, Dad. Instead of killing yourself, why don't you go save somebody? And that didn't, I felt like that wow. didn't come out of me. Because I wouldn't, I was, I was using that design. Sure. And so then I had to reverse the role and I had to stand up and make a promise to my son. And I promised my son, son, for the rest of my life, every child I look at, I'm going to see you. And I'm going to try to save as many lives as I can. And I won't die. Gosh, I hope all of you are listening to this. This is, this is huge. I mean, that sounds like a major, major turning point for you. It was the biggest turning point for me, and that's why I ask people all the time, why are you allowing your children to die because of you suffering in your addiction? What if your child loves you enough that they want you to live so they can know how to live their lives? Right. And because of my son's death, he's my why. And that's Absolutely. the reason why I want to partner with a brother like you, man, to do whatever I can to just keep leading those out of the bondage of this mental health issue and this addiction that's killing our country. Absolutely, absolutely. When did it all hit rock bottom for you? It all hit rock bottom when I was calling my mom one night. I was, dude, I was so, I was using so much that I knew I was gonna die. And I called my mom to tell her that I'm dying tonight, mom. And this was two years after my son had died because just How like, many years ago was that? Was that, was that after your career? Yeah, that, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was in 2013 or 2014. Okay. 2013. I called my mom and said, Mom, I'm going to die tonight. And she raced over and picked me up, and we were going to the hospital. And when I got out of the car, I walked up to the hospital door, and I fell on the ground and into a coma. And so I was in a coma for 28 days. 28 days. 28 days. After day 24, they, they told my mom that my body was shutting down, and they had to pull the plug. And my mother couldn't make that decision, so they called my children. And my kids said, we hate them, let them die. Oh my gosh. And so they came back in. They prop you up, they put oxygen in your nose, they put wires on your body, and they sit there to watch you die. And I, if literally, I wish you had a camera, I'll send you the photo. My sister took a deathbed picture of me at day 28. And by the grace of God, I woke up from that coma. Now, I had some outer body experiences that are really, really strange. And if I could be really transparent, my doctor, the nurse came in and she said, Vance, um, are you thirsty? You haven't eaten in a long time, and so I want to just check on you. And I said, yes, ma'am, but I'll tell you, I was upstairs trying to figure out how to get back to my room, and I, I couldn't, no one would hear me, no one would listen to me. And she said, Mr. Johnson, you haven't been out of that bed for 28 days, sir. And I told her what was upstairs. And she said, what? That's upstairs, but you haven't been out of that bed. A couple days later, my oh mom my and dad came to visit me. And my mom and dad, I said, Mom, this ex-wife came to say her goodbyes. This ex-wife came to say her goodbyes. Pastor so-and-so came and prayed over me. And, and they all had actually been there. Pastor so-and-so came to pray over me. They said, what are you talking about, Vance? They were here uh, like a week, a couple weeks ago, but you have been in a coma. And so I had these outer body experiences. Right. And then I saw these dark shadows walking in the room when I was alone. And I start realizing those aren't angels. 
whatever that is looking at me was probably what was housing me during my addiction. Now, I know this show is going a whole different places right now, brother, but no, I just okay. want people to know. It goes wherever we want it to go. Yeah, we hurt and we suffer. And to me, there's another side of this flesh life that we live in called eternity. Right. And what we do in this flesh determines where we go in eternity. And so that's the reason why I'm so transparent about my life and my walk and my walk in recovery and my walk in sobriety and my walk in Christ. I mean, I want people to know the truth. You have to tell the truth. I mean... If you go to the doctor and, you know, you go to the doctor for your foot and you say that your head hurts, how is the doctor going to help you? Mm, preach it. You know? <laughs> so if, if your foot hurts, then you got to tell the doctor your foot hurts. You have to be transparent. you got to tell the truth. That's right, brother. You know, and we lie when we go to treatment. And we lie when we sit in front of a therapist. And so I want to encourage your listeners, open up, be transparent. Sure. And I'm going to tell them this, too. Do you know this is your testimony? Yep. And I tell people, if this is not your testimony, what would it be if it wasn't this? If you're suffering, if you're struggling, mm-hmm. you're supposed to use this for a higher calling. Yep. So that when you get free from that bondage, sure. you can help those who are struggling. Yep. Because we want to hear someone that's been through it before. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. When we start telling the truth and we tell lies to everybody else, we tell lies to ourselves. Every day. You know, the rationalizations that we make, the excuses that we make. Yeah. And you know, I, I see the lengths that kids go to to use drugs, to smoke marijuana, to make a bong out of a, you know, a rubber band and a soda can because yep. they want to smoke weed that badly, they can turn into MacGyver. Yeah. So if you want to do something badly enough, you can. And so when people make up excuses and rationalize why they can't do something, you know, it's, it's lies. It's and that's, basically lies. And, that, and that's what's happening with our, with our children today. And maybe you can speak on that. You know, what, how can you inspire me to, when I go around to these schools around the country, what can I tell the kids to let them know that a lot of us are dealing with the underlying is- issues what kind of you know inspiration can I give them to let them know that who they are and what they're going through, they're not the only ones? I think it's important to it's important to bring up just like you said that that universality and and let them know that what they're seeing with these cell phones is you know it's a fallacy. Yeah. And that's not a, that's not an actual reality. It's not. And that you know I mean I was at a concert once and the, and the guy who was whose concert was he's like you know look the people you see on social media their lives suck too. Yep. You know, and yep. said it clearly as that. And I, I think it's important for people to realize that, yeah, the struggles you have, you're feeling less than. Yeah, a lot of people are feeling that. Yeah. You know what I do? Probably too? everybody's feeling that, especially the ones that are putting themselves out there, you know, portraying this fake, phony life. Those they hurt, are the ones that are hurting the most. The most, that's right. They always say, you know, when, when I was at the VA in the substance abuse treatment unit, and um, we had a male sexual trauma clinic. And um, we had some guys in the group that were loud. They were the alphas. Yep. And. We always said that the loudest guy in the room is the one that's most scared. I completely agree with you. You know, it's interesting. So I'll be in an auditorium with 2,000 kids, and I'll ask them, I'll say, raise your hand if you have a loved one or if you know someone or even yourself that's suffering with a disease of addiction. And so out of 2,000 kids, you might see 100 kids raise their hands, maybe. And so then I'll tell their friends, everyone look at those 100 kids that raise their hands. Everyone look at them. Do you love them? Do you love your friend? I'll say, okay, everyone put their hands down. Now everyone yep. put your hand up. I want all 2,000 kids to just raise your hand in the air. Just raise them. Just raise them. So now all of a sudden 2,000 kids are raising their hands in the air. And now I say this. Now after thinking about those kids that you love, your friends who you know has someone that's hurting, put your hand down now if you don't know somebody that's suffering. 
do you know that 90% of the kids keep their hands in the air? I said, if you guys love each other, you're going to open up and be transparent. Right. And you're going to be there for each other. You're going to encourage each other to get help, to talk to your counselors, talk to your teachers, right. talk to each other, reach out. And I think that's the other problem. That's the other thing I would impress upon kids is, you know, and it's the same thing with the kids that end up going and trying to shoot up a school, you know, or they might try to hurt themselves is that everybody is too meek. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to rock the boat. Right. And so they don't want to bring up that, you know, Johnny looks, Johnny's drawing pictures about death or whatever else. And maybe he's feeling depressed. Maybe he's thinking about hurting himself. Maybe he's thinking about hurting somebody else, but nobody wants to rock the boat and say anything or step on anybody's toes or offend anybody. But this is life that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you're saying something. You're speaking up. You know, it, you, we need to tell our kids, look, hey, if you see so-and-so drawing things that don't look right, and, you know, if you've got a you know, 14-year-old kid who's drawing pictures of death and shooting up people, you got to say something. you, you got to open your mouth. Wow, you just brought a memory back to me. I majored in art. Art was my first love, and that was the other thing I did besides sports. When I was a kid, I would draw. Oh, and you wow. made me remember my drawings. I drew death. And I drew people that were not smiling. I drew unhappy people, broken people when I was a kid. And nobody ever once. But what if people had been in touch with that then? Oh, my. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, man. That's crazy. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for, you know, I told you I was going to need some therapy <laughs> in, this, in this talk right now. I appreciate it. So many reasons why we do the things we do. It all, it all ties together. Wow. That is powerful. So. I need a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Another major thing, I, you know, another turning point that I read about in your book was, and, you know, and, and this had to have been a very difficult decision for you. You get offered to work at the treatment center, you know, after making millions of dollars in your career for 15 bucks an hour, 20 hours a week and a bus pass. Yep, that's exactly right. And at the same time, the Broncos are offering you two grand a week to tour the country. That's right. And just be Vance. That's right. Absolutely. And so here you have this chance to make you know a, a pretty decent living just being your your former self, your old self. Or, you know, do I gut it out and work hard and choose this life of, you know, living around the poverty line and working hard and living this very simplified life and starting over. Talk to me about your mindset, like because you, you had to have been tugged in different directions. What was that like for you? Doc, you spelled it out, man, I'll tell you. You know, it's interesting. And when I started to walk in that life of recovery, and again, I just yielded myself to my scriptures because I'm a man of the faith and I just love Jesus so much. And what I saw in the Bible was that we needed to deal with the underlying issues by coping and dealing with, with the hurt and the pains that we had. And so to me, my old life, that fame, was nothing that I wanted to go back to because that was me feeding my flesh. You already had associations with that bringing you down the wrong And ever since I was a child, it's what I wanted. So in this new walk in recovery, reading my Bible, what I saw was, why would I want to go back there again? So I actually came out and got offered a job to be the ball boy, to make 15 bucks an hour, a total of like 230, 240 bucks a week after taxes, and a bus pass and lived down an alley. I flew back to Denver, and I got an email from the Broncos saying, you know, we know it's not much, but we're going to pay you $2,000 a week just to be Vance Johnson. $2,000 a week, $200 a week. Really? Right? So I called my mom and said, Mom, 
Um, I got to make a decision here. I'm getting offered a couple hundred dollars a week to go to Florida, live down the alley, and catch a bus to work. Or the Bronco said they'll give me $2,000 a week just to be Vance Johnson. She said, oh, son, I'm not worried about it. God will tell you what to do. Love you. I get off the phone with my mom. <laughs> You're I'm on like, your own. <laughs> yeah. I get off the phone with my mom, and I call the guy that offered me the job in Florida. And I said, how much time do I have before I have to come down there? He said, take your time. You come whenever you want to. That's not the answer I wanted to hear. So I got <laughs> off the phone, and I sat There's there. no help at all. <laughs> and I sat there, and I was thinking, and I was like, God, what should I do? I got a plane ticket to Florida. I walked away from the $2,000 a week in the fame. And it literally took me almost three years to even go back to a Denver Bronco game because I didn't want the accolade, the fame, the, the joy of feeding my flesh anymore. I wanted to go deal and suffer. Because it's and, all fake happiness. It's, right. it's not real. Exactly. It's, not. it's the fake happiness. And so I went and started by being around other people that are in recovery, learning that we have to deal with the suffering and enduring the trials and, and get educated about it and that it was real. And then I started knowing that this is God's purpose for me. And that's the reason why at this very day, it's not about me anymore. It's about those who are out there suffering. It's about showing them the walk in recovery and just as importantly to me, showing them who they are in their walk in their faith with Christ. How long into the treatment process did it take for things to really click for you? Like to really feel like you developed sufficient tools to stay clean and sober? How long into the treatment process was it? Well, you're a doctor, so you know this answer better than me. I thought it was after year one. That's different for every person. And then I thought it was after year two. And then I thought, you know, I got this after year three. And then after year four, I was like, my gosh, year one, I didn't have nothing except tools. Yeah. Right? I mean, I know every day is a challenge. I'm sure, each, I'm sure today is still a challenge for you. Oh, brother, guess what? Every single day is going to be a challenge for the rest of my life. And that's the reason why, and I have to go back to it, man. That's why I go back to my faith. So I can learn how to yeah. deal with the trials and the sure. tribulations to continue to be educated and know that there is nothing. I'm going to tell you right now, on your air, I ain't never going to relapse. Never. Because it's not about me anymore. When it was about me, I used. Mm-hmm. Now it's about everybody else and the promise that I made to my son and more importantly, my walk with Christ because it's not about Vance wanting to have or feel. It's about trying to save lives right now. Sure. And plant seeds of recovery and the walk in Christ. I know I keep yep. saying Christ a lot, but I ain't going to stop because it's all I know. No, no, that's great. And when let, me we preface, let me preface that real quick. I tell everybody, listen, there are many, many paths and roads to recovery. So don't think just because I'm talking about Jesus that I'm saying it's your only way to recovery. Because you can be an atheist and stay clean for the rest of your life because sure. i got friends that are atheists. Sure. I'm just trying to say in my walk and my recovery that I give it to my God and my higher Absolutely. power. And that's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So... I just wanted to preface that. And if you're struggling with your faith, guess what? And people don't even talk about this. Jesus said he would rather you be struggling with your faith or be on fire for him and not in between. So don't think that he's judging you just because you don't believe in him right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and like you said, it's when we stop making it about us. And I was having a conversation at the the gathering earlier with someone. And when we stop making things about us, that's when we cope a lot better. We have a lot less distress. Right. And... I was, we were talking about an example of how when a minor thing comes up, like there's a lot of traffic or there's gridlock on the road, yeah. people lose their mind. Oh, crazy, man. But Running into each other on purpose. But when something major happens, like you have a family member with cancer, we keep it together. Right. Why is that, that the little things make us go off the deep end, but the big things we keep, it's because the little things that make us go off the deep end, we're being self-centered. Mm-hmm. It's all about us. Yeah. 
it's an inconvenience for us when there's that traffic. Great point. Don't they know I'm late? Don't they know I'm this? Don't don't they know they should be getting out of my way? Wow. Because we're self-centered. Yeah. And that's you know when we're being self-centered, when things don't go right, that's when the stress comes in. I think the doctor's been following me around. <laughs> You are so right. And I used to have the, those anxieties, and I still they still attack me when I'm driving even now. And so I'll end up speeding up and stuff like that. So I told you I need some therapy today. There you go. Thank you, brother. Yeah, there you go. No, you're right, man. And, and we're supposed to carry each other's burdens, and that's what, like you said, that's why we're okay when someone's suffering with an illness that Absolutely. we can uh, cope and deal with. But when we're so selfish, when it's about little things like that. That's a really good point. I'm going to slow down now. Thanks. <laughs> I got pulled over in... in um, in Georgia, actually, about oh, no. two months ago, I was going 95 miles an hour Ooh. because I was trying to keep up with cars that were driving 95 miles an hour. And the cop saw a black guy sitting in this car. He ended up pulling me over because I was the black guy. Oh, no. Yeah. And he walks up to me, and uh, he asked me for my driver's license and asked me for my insurance and everything. And I was like, brother, I'm sorry. Let me just be honest with you. I was just racing some cars because I wanted to keep up with them. And I'm sorry. And... Uh, I'm going out to open my drug and alcohol treatment program in Las Vegas, and I told him who I was and what I was doing. And he said, you going out to go save lives? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm not going to give you a ticket. Slow down. Go save some lives. There you go. <laughs> and so I really haven't sped much, right? Maybe I'll go 80. There so I'll go. slow down now to 70. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I have to be respectful of your time, and I'm so grateful for it. Who is Vance Johnson now? Vance Johnson is just that, Vance Johnson. I used to be the Vance when I was playing ball, and the Vance had to die. And who I am now is just uh, a vessel to be used to go out and just offer hope to people who are suffering, who are struggling, to educate, to speak to the masses, to let them know that they're not alone, that what they're suffering and enduring, the whole world is, and they need to turn it around and use it so that they can go save someone else's life. And this is what I'll be doing for the rest of my life. In fact, I'm going to die saving someone's life. And you are indeed a great vessel, folks. To spend five minutes with this gentleman, the warmth and the genuineness and the kindness and the passion that emanates from this man, it's really something to experience. And so it's been absolutely amazing spending time with you today. Love your show, brother. Thank you so much. So one last question. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the Vance Johnson Recovery Center and also how everyone can find you and... Um, keep tabs on what you're up to and how they can be part of the cause. Well, you know, what's really awesome is this. So my football number was number 82. And if you want to reach me, you call 888-82-VANCE. That's how you reach me, 888-82-VANCE. Or you can go to our website, www.vancejohnsonrecoverycenter.com. Um, I'm not just that face on this facility. I'm actually there facilitating meetings. I'm doing interventions. I'm flying out of state to get people and bring them in. I'm picking them up at the airport. I'm doing everything internally so I can be in these, these folks' lives. So if you have a loved one that's struggling, please reach out to me. I'd love to see whatever I can do to help get your loved one into one of our facilities or lead them to somewhere that's going to offer them the care that they need. That's how you get a hold of me. And Excellent. This is what I'm all about. I don't, I'm not sure when you're sleeping, brother, because uh, <laughs> you're, you're here, there, and everywhere. I don't sleep much. And uh, you're so gracious with your time because, uh, you know, I, I just I see how much you're doing for everybody else. And But um, clearly, you know, one of the most important things, I, you know, I always used to see, and we used to say this when I was at the VA, is if you see someone showing a lot of anger or negative emotions, they're not getting their needs met. Right. 
and I see the joy that you have in doing this. So yes. clearly you're getting your needs met and they always say you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. So whatever you're doing is filling your cup because you, you're sure filling everybody else's up. That's and what it's, it's all just about. so wonderful to watch. I appreciate that, it man. It really so is much. wonderful to watch. I'll accept and that. how can everybody find you on Instagram and Facebook and social media? Even more so. I'm really transparent, and I'm up most of, not most of the night, a lot of the nights, and people can reach out to me on the Vance Johnson Athlete page. And, you know, we have a bot that you go through, but occasionally I see it, and I'll respond right away, get a phone number so that we can reach out to someone and help them out. I have Instagram as well, but Facebook probably is going to be the best way. And I have a couple other pages, but if you go to Vance Johnson Athlete and it says Vance Inspires on there, you can reach out directly to me on there. Excellent. Yeah. Vance, I cannot thank you enough for being on here. It's been an absolute pleasure. If there's anything I can do to help further your cause, you've definitely got a friend here, brother, and we definitely have to do this again sometime because I'm sure we've got a lot more that we could talk about. And... Um, so keep doing what you're doing because uh, you're definitely a shining light. You know, I, I tell people to, you know, not be a uh, tugboat, to, to, to be a lighthouse. Mm. I don't know if you ever heard that analogy. In the scriptures, it would be a lighthouse. You know, a tugboat, <laughs> they, they run around and they're trying to drag everybody to safety. A, a lighthouse shines their light for everybody to follow. Yeah. Keep them from crashing on the rocks. Wow. And you, my friend, are a lighthouse. And I want you to continue doing that. I love it, brother. Let's go save some lives. Absolutely. Once again, folks, if this resonates with you, please go online to whatever uh, program you're watching through, whether it's YouTube or SoundCloud or Spotify or iTunes, and leave us a five-star review so we can keep the great content coming to you. It's been a pleasure. I hope everybody's out there. If you're not happy with your story, go out and change your story. And as always, guys, be good to yourselves.